the architectural symbolism of the two great empires of the ancient world, the Mesopotamian ziggurat and the pyramids of Egypt, visually represented a hierarchical society, broad at the base, narrow at the top. The Jewish symbol, the menorah, was the opposite, as if to say that in Judaism the leader serves the people, not vice versa. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 105, Israel's Tax Rebellion. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. The first divinely ordained rebellion in the history of biblical Israel was about taxes. This did not escape the notice of the men known as the Black-Robed Regiment, the ministers and preachers of colonial America, whose sermons helped spur the American Revolution. I quote from Harry Stout's book, The New England Soul, Preaching and Religious Culture in Colonial New England. Quote, In March 1775, as word spread of the arrival of 12,000 additional British regulars in Boston, ministers stepped up their rereading of Israel's past. Militia sermons in particular searched for Old Testament precedents to oppose kings and standing armies and to justify civil insurrection. Arguments against the monarchy came from Israel's experience under the judges, while precedents for rebellion were taken from the period of the divided kingdoms in Israel. The partition of Israel occurred, ministers explained, when the people of Israel met to elect a successor to the recently deceased King Solomon. Normally, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, would have been elected. But as the historian Josephus explained, contrary to all reason, Rehoboam rejected the advice of his elders and promised the people he would tax them more harshly than his father. In response, the ten northern tribes of Israel revolted and took to their tents and elected the Egyptian exile Jeroboam as their king. End quote. For a biblically engaged populace in colonial America, the choice of this story is an obvious one, and the sermons seem to write themselves. But ultimately, the essence of the story is less about taxes than the nature of leadership. And the lessons of this biblical account can also be discerned from one of the greatest leaders of the American Revolution. Because of the sins of Solomon, the Almighty declares the forthcoming division of Israel to take place after Solomon's death. But even when Solomon still lives, the seeds of division begin. One of Solomon's ministers of tax collection, an Ephraimite by the name of Jeroboam or Yeravam criticizes choices made by Solomon in the Jerusalem of his empire. And Solomon, perhaps sensing correctly that Yeravam may be the one who will inspire the splitting of his kingdom, seeks to kill him. And Yeravam flees to Egypt. On the way, Yeravam encounters the prophet Achia the Shilonite, who informs him of his destiny. Chapter 11, verses 29, 30, 31, 37, and 38. And it came to pass at that time when Yeravam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Achia the Shilonite found him in the way, and he had clad himself with a new garment, and they too were alone in the field, and Achia caught the new garment that was on him and rent it in twelve pieces. And he said to Yeravam, Take thee ten pieces, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will rend the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give ten tribes to thee. Note well, ladies and gentlemen, the linguistic link and the painful parallel. Samuel had announced through the ripping of a cloak, the tearing of the monarchy away from Saul, and its bequeathal to the house of David. And now most of the tribes of Israel are being torn away from the house of David. Solomon dies and is succeeded by his son, Rehavam. The stage is set for confrontation as Israel requests an easing of the tax burden that had been placed by Solomon for the maintenance of empire. Chapter 12, And Rehavam went to Shechem, for all Israel were come to Shechem to make him king, and it came to pass. When Yeravam, the son of Nevat, 
who was yet in Egypt, heard of it, for he fled from the presence of King Solomon, and Yeravam dwelt in Egypt, that they sent and called him. And Yeravam and all the congregation of Israel came and spoke to Rechavam, saying, Thy father made our yoke hard. Now therefore make thou the hard service of thy father, and his heavy yoke which he put upon us, lighter, and we will serve thee. And he said unto them, Depart for three more days, then come back to me. And the people departed. What takes place at this point is tragic, the failure of an arrogant king, but it is also an incredibly illuminating story about the nature of leadership. There are two sets of individuals from whom the new king, the son of Solomon, seeks advice. The first are those from the previous generation. Verse 6, And King Rehavam consulted with the old men that stood before Solomon his father while he yet lived, and said, How do you advise that I answer this people? And they spoke to him, saying, If thou wilt be a servant to the people this day, and wilt serve them, and answer them, and speak good words of them, then they will be thy servants forever. This is good advice, and it speaks profoundly to the essence of leadership. As Rabbi Jonathan Sachs has noted, the central term here is serve. If thou wilt be a servant, and wilt serve them, then they will be thy servants. A king, in other words, must understand himself as a servant to others. Israel will loyally serve the king, if he will live to serve them. Rabbi Sachs writes, quote, In contemporary terms, Jim Collins, in his book From Good to Great, tells us, on the basis of extensive research, that the great organizations are those with what he calls level five leaders, people who are personally modest but fiercely ambitious for the team. They seek not their own success but the success of those they lead. This is counterintuitive. We think of leaders as people hungry for power. Many are. But power corrupts. That is why most political careers end in failure. Even Solomon's wisdom could not save him from temptation. Hence the life-changing idea, to lead is to serve. The greater your success, the harder you have to work to remember that you are there to serve others. They are not there to serve you. End quote. So Rabbi Sachs writes, It is this point that the elderly advisors of the young king seek to impress upon the new ruler. But alas, the king has another group from whom he also seeks advice. A set of young sycophants. Verse 8. But he forsook the counsel of the old men which they had given him, and consulted with the young men that had grown up with him and who stood before him. And then in verse 12, it is the advice of these young fools that Rechavam follows. So Yeravam and all the people came to Rechavam the third day, as the king had appointed, saying, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people roughly and forsook the counsel that the old men had counseled him and spoke to them after the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy and I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions, so that the king hearkened not to the people. Thus, the stage is set for the splitting of the people of Israel. Verse 16. So when all Israel saw that the king hearkened not to them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion have we in David? Neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now see to thy own house, David. So Israel departed to their tents. But as for the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah, Rechavam reigned over them. So scripture tells us, and again, there is a linguistic link that is noteworthy. The phrase, what portion have we in David, parallels the words of the rebel Sheva ben Bichri. But whereas the previous revolt against the Davidic house was defeated, this one is foreordained from God. When the tax collector of the Davidic monarchy is sent into Israel, he is stoned. And when the king musters troops attempting to put down the secession, God prophetically informs Judah that now the kingdom is to be split, with Yeravam ruling the northern tribes. Providence and freedom are often joined. God wishes to divide the monarchy as punishment for Solomon's sins. But the division occurs in a way 
in which the son of Solomon arrogantly exhibits that he does not deserve to rule over a united Israel. Thus does this chapter emerge as a profound symbol of much that the Hebrew Bible has to teach us about politics. In further reflections on this story, Rabbi Sachs takes note of two important statements from the great English political thinker Lord Acton, known usually as Lord Acton, though as someone interested in the history of the House of Lord, I prefer Lord Acton's more official name. John Emmerich Edward Dalberg Acton, first Baron Acton, the 13th Marcus of Gropoli. The first statement of Lord Acton to which Rabbi Sachs refers is that, quote, the example of the Hebrew nation laid down the parallel lines on which all freedom has been won. The doctrine of national tradition and the doctrine of the higher law, the principle that a constitution grows from a root by process of development and not of essential change, and the principle that all political authorities must be tested and reformed according to a code which was not made by man. End quote. And the second statement of Lord Acton is incredibly famous. Quote, all power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. End quote. On the one hand, for the Bible, power is important, and the Bible does not deny its importance. On the other hand, as Rabbi Sachs reflects, quote, power is dangerous, it corrupts, it also diminishes. If I have power over you, then I stand as a limit to your freedom. I can force you to do what you don't want to do. Whereas the Athenians said to the Melians, the strong do what they want and the weak suffer what they must. The Torah, Rabbi Sachs continued, is a sustained exploration of the question, to what extent can a society be organized not on the basis of power, end quote. The answer, Rabbi Sachs argues, can be derived from an ethic of service. And Rabbi Sachs gives us a lovely homiletical symbol with which he reflects on how Israel inverts the entire ancient approach to leadership. Quote, In Judaism, this entire configuration was overturned. Leaders were to serve, not to be served. Moses' highest accolade was to be called Evid Hashem, God's servant. Only one other person, Joshua, his successor, earns this title in Tanakh. The architectural symbolism of the two great empires of the ancient world, the Mesopotamian Ziggurat, the Tower of Babel, and the Pyramids of Egypt, visually represented a hierarchical society, broad at the base, narrow at the top. The Jewish symbol, the menorah, was the opposite, broad at the top, narrow at the base, as if to say that in Judaism the leader serves the people, not vice versa. Moses' first response to God's call at the burning bush was one of humility. Who am I to lead? It was precisely this humility that qualified him to lead. End quote. Thus does the kingdom of David lose ten tribes. For the next many generations and throughout much of the book of Kings, we will be studying two separate kingships, the descendants of David and the northern kings of Israel. But the tale of the kingship's division bears a lesson for all kings yet to come and for all leaders, reminding us that leaders must seek to serve. And one great leader of the American Revolution truly understood this. Washington's words in his farewell address are justly famous. Quote, Though in reviewing the incidents of my administration I am unconscious of intentional error, I am nevertheless too sensible of my defects not to think it probable that I may have committed many errors. Whatever they may be, I fervently beseech the Almighty to avert or mitigate the evils to which they may tend. I shall also carry with me the hope that my country will never cease to view them with indulgence, and that after 45 years of my life dedicated to its service with an upright zeal, the faults of incompetent abilities will be consigned to oblivion as myself must soon be to the mansions of rest, end quote. But particularly interesting for our purposes is Washington's response to the Newburgh Conspiracy, a proposed mutiny in 1783 by members of the Continental Army who were angered at a lack of payment from the Congress. 
an anonymous letter had urged the infantrymen to ignore the conciliatory approach of Washington, and Washington himself composed an entire address in order to dissuade the army from turning to mutiny. One can look today at the original handwritten address and marvel at the fact that not only did this man need to lead a war against the mightiest empire on earth, he also had to inspire fortitude and put down unrest amongst his own troops. But the most consequential moment was not when he read from these remarks, but, as historians describe, when Washington paused to put eyeglasses on himself and remarked, Gentlemen, you must pardon me, for I have not only grown gray, but almost blind in service to my country. At that point, as historians write, some of the bitter, battle-hardened soldiers began to weep. And through that gesture, the mutiny came to an end. When leaders show that they serve those they lead, they leave a lasting legacy. This is what the tale of Israel's tax rebellion inspires us to understand. And this is what the story of Washington's eyeglasses inspires us to see. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.